Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm joined by Dr. Joel Paris. He's professor and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University and research associate in the Department of Psychiatry at Sir Mortimer B. Davis Jewish General Hospital. His research interests include developmental factors in personality disorders, and culture and personality. is the author of many books, including an evidence-based critique of contemporary psychoanalysis, The Fall of an Icon, Psychoanalysis and Academic Psychiatry, and Fads and Fallacies in Psychiatry. And today we're going to focus mostly on psychoanalysis and its impact on psychiatry. So Dr. Perrys, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. By the way, I'm no longer chair of my department, fortunately. Oh. Uh, but all, everything else you said in your introduction is current. Okay, Th thank you for that correction. Okay, so let's start with a little bit of history here. So um, if I'm correct, I think that psychoanalysis dominated uh, psychiatry and even perhaps, I mean, of course there were there was behaviorism in the 50s, 60s uh, in uh, theoretical scientific psychology, let's say, but psychoanalysis was very popular, right, until the 70s. Yes, well, I mean, it didn't totally dominate psychiatry because there was okay. always a biological psychiatry, particularly in psychiatric hospitals. Mm -hmm. But in general hospitals and in office practice, I think it's fair to say it had a leading role and in North America, most of the heads of departments were psychoanalysts in those days. Mm -hmm. uh, but do you think that there were any particular reasons why psychoanalysis was so appealing to people? Well, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting, even when it's wrong. Uh, I, uh, I mean, the students, the students still have a kind of a bit of fascination with it and are often attached to teachers who, 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 who uh, take this point of view. Uh, I think it was mostly, it filled a niche which was vacant because uh, uh, where, whereas in those days, uh, uh, biological psychiatry, of course, dominated already the treatment of schizophrenia and bipolar illness and all the severe mental illnesses. The more common illnesses like depression and anxiety were mostly treated with psychotherapy and the medication was used less in those days than it is now. And uh, in the psychotherapy field, I mean, there was always a lot of different methods and you mentioned behaviorism was one of them, but behaviorism really wasn't very appealing because it said that the mind was a black box and, and we shouldn't even talk about it. And, uh, it's a stimulus response, and I don't think anybody was took took that point of view that seriously, except you know people who were devotees of Skinner, and 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 so uh, th those were the two main forms of psychotherapy, and uh, it was only when uh, cognitive behavioral therapy came up, you know, with Aaron Beck a little later, that we had a, a competitor which was not only as 
deep, if you like, as psychoanalysis, but also was evidence-based and, and there was evidence in the, from randomized controlled trials that it actually worked. Mm -hmm. So cognitive behavior therapy was evidence-based. Does that mean that psychoanalysis wasn't or was it? It, it never was. Okay. Uh, Freud was asked at one point late in his career if, if there should be clinical trials and he was kind of so-so about it. And the psychoanalysts, they, they, were, they were like charismatic teachers. Uh, they could explain everything they were uh, eloquent, they still are, uh, and, and often charismatic, but oh, it was very rare for them to conduct research. And, and psychoanalysts being involved in research is a relatively recent phenomenon in the last 25 years, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But since Freud's psychoanalysis has been revised several times, am I correct? It's been revised a lot, and I think that the average psychoanalyst today uh, doesn't pay too much attention to Oedipus complex or things that, that Freud thought were central. Uh, I think many of them, for example, will follow Bowlby's attachment theory, uh, which is, a, you know, which is to be considered as a as a more scientific model of of human development, but. And, but you know, still formal and formal psychoanalysis got kind of, uh, if you like, uh, ma made more available by the, by something called psychodynamics therapy, in which patients were seen once or twice a week, and a couch was not used. But you know, the, so many of the same concepts are still there among the psychoanalysts who are have not disappeared. They're just now in a, a minority group. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what are some of the differences between psychoanalysis as a, let's say, theoretical discipline regarding the, how the human mind functions and psychodynamic therapy? Well, I think the theory is, is about the same. Uh, the, the issue is, does it, is it really necessary to see people four, five times a week uh, in, order, in order to help them? is the first question. The second question is, is it necessary to see people for years? Mm -hmm. I mean, when Freud started, people were seen just for a few months and that was normal. But when they didn't improve, people thought, well, let's make it longer, let's keep going. And eventually you've got this kind of interminable Ill Woody Allen situation where people would, would go for many, many years to psychoanalysis and it still happens. I still hear about it. Uh, because there's no definite endpoint. The psychodynamic therapy is more accessible because it's less expensive. I mean, in Freud's day, if you went four times a week, I don't think the, I don't know what the fees were exactly, but it seems like people could afford them. Today, you know, charging $200 and more per hour, only the richest people could, could, could afford, can afford to go for a formal psychoanalysis where see, seeing people once a week, uh, which, which is more, if you like, there's not an evidence base for, for seeing people more than once a week. And so a lot of therapists just see people once a week. And, and uh, another development is brief psychodynamic therapy for which there is evidence, by the way, there is re good research on it, that is probably uh, 
quite effective, maybe e even equal to cognitive behavioral therapy. And that usually involves something like 10 to 20 sessions total. So that's, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of, of that in, in the available in the today and it makes it more accessible. Mm -hmm. So could we say that contemporary psychoanalysis is evidence-based? Well, I would say mostly not uh, because, uh, but there are psychoanalysts who have done really good research. And you know, an example would be Peter Fonagy from the UK, you know, who's been very active in, in research and is very, has a sophisticated understanding of research. Um, there are a number of people like that, but the class where, but the, the issue is whether or not it is necessary to follow all, all of these procedures or whether we should have a more eclectic model, which retains some of the good things about psychoanalysis, like, like understanding patients empathically and being able to uh, take a life history and uh, understand the connections between between events in people's lives and their later symptoms. These things need to be retained, but an eclectic model or, or, or integrated model of psychotherapy could retain that while using more of the principles of, of cognitive behavioral therapy to, to actually get people better. I think one of the reasons why psychoanalysis is problematic is that is the belief that if you just dig up the past and quotes work through all these past events, that's enough to make you better. And it isn't because you, because people need to learn how to be, to have skills that allow them to function better in the present. And that's more the domain of CBT. Mm -hmm. And perhaps also in psychoanalysis and even maybe perhaps in psychotherapy in general, people also have to take into account individual variation, right? Because now we have disciplines like behavioral genetics that tells us that, uh, I mean, our behavior is at least partially uh, genetically based. No, I totally agree with you. And that's, that was never part of psychoanalytic theory. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why psychoanalysis hit a wall so often where, it, where patients would get to a certain point and they wouldn't get any further was because of their of this genetic influence which is particularly affects their personality traits and their personality traits affects their interpersonal functioning and their behavior and their emotional control and all these things and this was not part of the model of psychoanalysis so we need we need to help people with this and you know, you know, in my particular area, personality disorders, there's been a lot of interest in dialectical behavior therapy, which focuses on emotion regulation. This was not at all in psychoanalysis. And so I think the, the fact that there are 200 forms of psychotherapy is crazy because they're not all that different. But uh, I, I personally am in favor of, of an integrative model. And there are, there are a number of movements and and journals and conferences which attempt to, to, to move towards psychotherapy integration. We should have one psychotherapy, not mm -hmm. because, because each one becomes 
it's not just psychoanalysis. I mean, each one of them is dangerous to be, has the danger of becoming a cult in its own right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, again, referring to these individual differences, isn't it also the case that psychoanalysis focuses a lot on people's personal stories? And I mean, perhaps some of the things that they uh, call traumas, for example, I mean, they don't affect all people in the same way. I mean, certain episodes in life. This is absolutely true. I mean, uh, if you're a psychotherapist and people come into you with stories of ch childhood trauma, you say, you could, you're very tempted to say, well, that's the cause of their problems. What you don't see is that there are, for every person you see, there are maybe 10 pe people who have never come to therapy, who don't need therapy, have had childhood trauma, and, but are resilient and got, old, and got past it. And if you look at in, in the research literature, you'll find that the relationship between early experience and adult behavior is not very strong because of exactly of your point of that there are these powerful individual differences, particularly in terms of uh, in terms of personality. I mean, we 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 did some research in my own center where we compared sisters who had grown up in the same family, and it's been said that siblings are about as similar in personality as perfect strangers. But it, what we found was that they had totally different function, functioning in spite of living in the same environment. Uh, and I think this is related to the, to the heritable portions of personality that, you, that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we talk about contemporary psychoanalysis, is it still fundamentally Freudian or are there different schools of thought out there and some more or less Freudian and more or less scientific, let's say? There are definitely uh, different points of view. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the mistakes that was made, though, was to teach psychoanalysis outside the universities and to create institutes where psychoanalysis was taught without accountability to the larger scientific methods and, 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 and academic standards. So uh, a lot of people are trained in psychoanalysis and don't do very much of it. it it's just another thing that, that they can add to their curriculum vitae, but the, the demand for psychoanalysis is not so high as it was. I mean, 30 years ago, people would come into the clinics and say, how do I get a psychoanalytic treatment? And today you never hear that. They say, where, where is CBT? Where, how could I get access to CBT? So, and uh, so uh, there are these schools, I mentioned attachment, the attachment approach in the UK, which is, which is much broader and, and, and does, and although it doesn't take genetics into account, it definitely, takes individual differences between people into account. And, uh, but you know, the, the, I think the method of psychoanalysis is, is what I question the most because it's, there's no evidence that going four times a week or lying on a couch is better than going once a week. There's no evidence, in fact, that going for five years is better than going for six months. Yeah, uh, so, what would you say are some of the um, uh, mental disorders that psychoanalysis is scientifically proven to be effective against? 
Well, I don't think there's any evidence of psychoanalysis is, is indicated for any particular mental disorder. Mm. Uh, the, the, study, the, the studies which are strongest are the ones which have examined brief courses of, of psychoanalytically based psychotherapy once a week over a period of, so let's say three to six months, up to 20 sessions of psychotherapy. Uh, and these are often given for people with depression, not so severe, anxiety disorders, and also people with personality disorders, which just means that they don't, don't function interpersonally and they don't have a direction in life and that sort of thing. So these are the kind of conditions for which it's offered. These are the same conditions for which CBT is offered. So I don't think there's any specific relationship. Mm -hmm. but, but would you say that because Aaron Beck was originally a psychoanalyst that CBT is at its core psychoanalytic? There is an element of CBT, which is like that. It's called schema, the theory of schemas. So there is something in there, which is, sounds a bit like psychoanalysis, which is that you have certain experiences maybe earlier in your life, which shape the way you think about the world and leads you to certain misjudgments and that these can be corrected. But Beck's model is more educational. It's, it's, they remind me of a plumber who comes in with a big box of tools and they have some, a screw and a, and a, you know, for everything. So uh, the, 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 they don't have the same point of view as psychoanalysis. And I think, I think, you know, I think, I think Beck really, uh, he, he didn't keep, it, keep very much of psychoanalysis in his, in his system. There's only a little bit. Mm -hmm. So we've already mentioned Bowlby several times in our conversation. Isn't it the case that with attachment theory, or at least the schools of psychoanalysis that adopted attachment theory, moved from a more intrapsychic approach to a more relational approach? Absolutely. Absolutely right. And there is also something called relational psychoanalysis, or yeah. relational psycho therapies, which, you know, uh, Mitchell, I think I mentioned him in my book, a uh, number of people ha have worked on a model, which is more, and then there's interpersonal psychotherapy, which, which was also developed by, pe by people who had, who were coming out of psychoanalysis and looking for something different. So interpersonal psychotherapy, which was developed in, uh, in, in America, uh, is, I call it psycho, psychoanalysis without the past because it's all about the present. It's all about how are you getting along with people now and how can you do better? And it's, so again, this leads to a kind of a more teaching model and less of an exploratory model. Uh, so in these newer methods, including att attachment theory, the therapist is much more active and talks more. The idea of sitting there and just listening for an hour and then making some kind of statement ex cathedra, you know, at the very end, uh, this I don't think is helpful. And if you read people who had Sigmund Freud as an analyst, he wasn't even, he wasn't even like that himself. He gave advice. Uh, 
And this, I don't know where this idea came from that you should be silent, uh, <laughs> but you know, psychotherapy is a kind of education and you have, you have to explain things to people and have methods of, of, of showing them that they could do better in life and handle their problems better. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the aspects of psychoanalysis that perhaps, uh, I mean, a cut short in terms of understanding how people's psychology develops that with a more relational approach got better or we got a better understanding of how people how people's psychology develops well i mean a relational approach doesn't exclude the possibility of saying to people you know given the way you were you were brought up in your early environment. It's not surprising that that you don't trust people. It's not surprising that you quarrel quarrel with everybody. You know these are problems which do have a past history behind them. But let's but that but the past is past, and we're going to work in the present. Is is more that's more of a relational approach. Mm -hmm. So uh, since there are these genetic basis for people's behavior and individual differences, as we've already mentioned here. Uh, how do you look at how psychotherapists should approach the sorts of relationships that people have with their parents, for example? Because if I understand it correctly, behavioral genetics says that um, the shared environment isn't that impactful in terms of our uh, of how our psychological traits develop. Yes, well, this still remains quite controversial. I mean, there are some behavioral geneticists, like uh, Robert Plowman, for example, who uh, imply that the that the family doesn't count for very much, and and there have been a number of others who have taken this point of view. I think that's a little going a little too far. I think people with, I think if children have a difficult temperament genetically, yeah. they need something different from their parents. So I think these results reflect the fact that most children don't have a difficult temperament. And unless you do something really bad to your children, you're not going to ruin them. Uh, and, and children, develop in, in their own trajectory, but there are a certain number of people who have a difficult temperament. I, and you can see this from very early in life where they get upset easily, they don't calm down easily, where they're anxious, where they're gloomy. Uh, these are things which you can see early on in life. And those children, I think, if you add on to that, an interaction, a gene environment interaction between their temperament and a bad environment, you're going to get a bad result. Uh, so I think, I think the reason the behavior genetic studies don't, don't show this may be because the majority of people, their parents are sort of okay, maybe not, not the greatest and don't fully completely understand them, but, but there are lots of other such things in life which can make up for that friends and peers and and teachers and all kinds of other people so i think there are some people who are deeply affected by their environment and but that's because they're extremely sensitive to their environment and that's one of the newer ideas in psychology something called differential sensitivity to the environment associated with uh, jay belsky who is a 
an American psychologist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had him on the show. So, um, I mean, is it the case that there are aspects of how Freud uh, understood how our subconscious mind worked that are still scientifically relevant today? Well, we, well, no one is denying the existence of an unconscious, but the question is, yeah. what do you mean by the unconscious? Yeah. I mean, uh, the problem with Freud's method is that he had his preconceptions and he shaped what his patient, the, the narratives that he heard from his patients into his preconceptions. The mind is mostly unconscious, but you know, if you look at Daniel Kahneman's system one and system two, you know, in terms of the way we think, most of the things we do with our minds are sort of automatic and we don't even think about them. That's a kind, that's been called the cognitive unconscious. Uh, so there certainly is an unconscious mind, but the idea that the unconscious mind is full of, of horrible things, which we all, which we have to suppress. I think, I don't think this model is really quite correct. Uh, the, so I, I think we need a different model of the unconscious mind and, the idea of making the unconscious conscious and that it's a bit as if you had had, had, had injury and it got infected and you, you have to lance it to get the pus out. I mean, this is the model that Freud was using. I don't think it's right. Mm -hmm. And talking about the subconscious mind, there's also that thing about uh, repressed memories. I mean, th does, does it make sense? I mean, th do people really repress their memories in a sort of defensive way? I would say no. I would say that there's a lot of, most of the evidence points to the fact that that's not correct. Uh, one example is post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. In PTSD, you're pro you, bad things that happen to you and you can't stop thinking about them. It's just the opposite. So trauma does not cause repression. It, it may cause suppression because, which is different because suppression means, just means I know it happened, but I don't want to think about it, which is kind of adaptive. It, it's found, it was found, found by, in uh, some of the studies of, of defense mechanisms to be one of the more adaptive ways of, of handling uh, painful ideas. But I think the idea of, of repression and undoing repression, I reject that. I, I think the scientific evidence is strongly against it. The memory experts, people like Schachter in, and McNally at Harvard, they don't think there's any evidence for this. Mm -hmm. And I think the repressed memory story where people were, at, I should say encouraged or brainwashed into thinking that they had, they'd been traumatized. I think this was a terrible scandal, which brought this psychotherapy into disrepute. Uh, this was particularly 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago in the nineties. And it was a big fad in psychotherapy and it led to all kinds of legal issues and, uh, and it was constantly in the media. You don't hear as much about it today, but it's not completely gone either. Mm -hmm. What about the case of defensive mechanisms in general? Is there good scientific evidence for that sort of phenomenon? There is some evidence for that, but maybe they shouldn't be called defense mechanisms because that, that depends on the theory of the unconscious and you have a defense against the unconscious becoming conscious. Uh, 
If you just think of them as adaptive mechanisms, which don't necessarily mean they're unconscious, uh, there is is quite a bit of research on this. Uh, Some of it has been done at my own own university, McGill. Uh, And uh, there are ways of scoring these things. There are questionnaires you can give people as with any other psychological uh, dimension, uh, self-report questionnaires are the usual way of measuring these things and they can be shown to have a relationship to certain outcomes and certain uh, quality of relationships in life. There is some evidence in favor of them. I just think the word defense is, should be changed to adaptive mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Would you agree that another problem of psychoanalysis is that, uh, I mean, people have a theory and they try to gather information from different areas to support their preconceived theories. Like, for example, they draw from more recently epigenetics. They also drew from neuroscience, from effective neuroscience, for example. I mean, would you agree with that? Yes, well, this, well, certainly there are people in the, the, in the biological sciences who have been interested in building a bridge to psychoanalysis and psychoanalysts have, within, in an age of neuroscience have wanted to build a bridge to them. So we had Panskop, for example, who supported uh, psychoanalysis and, and he was a famous neuroscientist and he, he wrote in favor of the, of the validity of, of psychoanalysis uh, quite a bit. And so I think everybody's using neuroscience these days. Even, even uh, humanistic scholars are quoting neuroscience these days where they used to quote Freud. Uh, and uh, the problem is neuroscience is kind of, people don't realize this, but neuroscience is just beginning. I mean, 50 years from now, we will, I, I, I will guess that we'll find the ideas, our ideas about the brain as primitive as those of 19, today, would, if we look at 1970, we think, oh, how we didn't understand very much. We're gonna say the same thing in 2070. A neuroscience is on, is on I mean, studying the most complicated thing in the entire universe, the human brain. Mm-hmm. And it's gonna take centuries to really, to really uh, sort this out. So I, I think the problem of applying today's neuroscience, which is sort of pretty general, you know, you can do functional magnetic resonance imaging and certain areas seem to light up. Often it doesn't tell you much more than you could have known just by talking to somebody. <laughs> you know, but it, it gives you a scientific grounding for your observations. It's, it's, it's a good thing, but it's not like, it's, it's not like this is going to, this should be used to validate ideas. I mean, psychoanalysis comes from 1900 originally, approximately. How many scientific ideas, you know, are continue unmodified for, for over a century? Very few, I mean, Newton, Einstein, you know, Darwin, you know, there are a few, you know, but things have to change. Mm-hmm. Right. What about the efforts by people like Mark Solms that developed the field that I think he calls neuropsychoanalysis? I don't, I don't, 
I don't feel much impressed by his work. And I said so in the book. Um, I think you're trying to, to attach neuroscience to psychoanalysis, but in science, you have to question everything. Uh, so if, if you're building a new science, you don't use the latest science to confirm an old science, which is already out of date. That's not the way science works. You, if Solms had wanted to develop a new theory with some, in which psychoanalytic ideas and the findings of neuroscience were somehow integrated, that would, that would be interesting. But what he, what he did was to try to show Freud was right all along and I can prove it with an fMRI scan. You know, this is not science, a scientific point of view. Mm -hmm. And I mean, was just looking at uh, image, uh, brain images of different regions firing, for example, or being activated. I mean, we can't really draw that much information just from that. It's a, it's a, it was a tremendous advance, yeah. you know, to have this technique. But in fact, the brain is not localized in this way. It's not like you can look at the picture and the, all it tells you really is the blood flow has increased on the average to a certain part of the brain. Meanwhile, everything we think and feel is complete, is, is unlocalized. It has broad effects on, on areas all over the brain. So we're talking about a, a brain with billions of neurons and we're trying to explain it by wh which area lights, lights up on fMRI. It's an oversimplification. And I think it's an, it's an attempt to validate psychoanalysis instead of just trying to say, what are the good things about psychoanalysis that, do, that are supported by research and let's keep them, but let's build a new model because we don't need to go back to Freud. He's been gone now for 80, 90 years. Mm -hmm. So I've asked you several things about different forms of psychotherapy. What about psychiatry? Can psychoanalysis still provide informative insights to the practice of psychiatry? Well, I think the problem in psychiatry, which is something which makes me a little bit unhappy, hmm. is that we now are dominated by neuroscience, or at least by the present state of neuroscience, to the point that most that psychiatrists are, see, are writing medications, prescriptions, they're treating patients almost entirely with drugs, and only a minority of psychiatrists really do any serious psychotherapy to begin with. Now, clinical psychology is different, but there you'll see that CBT is dominant and psychodynamic thinking is, is, uh, is still is in a minority. The psycho so, now, I don't think psychoanalysis has done much to explain the causes of mental illness. Uh, I have written a lot about the need for gene environment interactive models, mm -hmm. putting nature and nurture together, uh, embracing complexity, anything which is a simple explanation of something like the human mind is almost bound to be wrong. 
And I think psychoanalysis, I mean, I was, I mean, I received training in psychiatry 50 years ago. My, many of my teachers adopted this model and I did use it up to a point, but like most people, I've evolved into a more eclectic and integrative approach to psychotherapy. I'm one of the minority of psychiatrists who still does psychotherapy and I, and that's because, but that's because I have, I'm specialized in a condition which, for which psychotherapy is the main treatment, that's borderline personality disorder. Um, that, that's been my research and my interest and my clinical interests now for many decades. So I st still do a lot of, do still do a lot of psychotherapy. I mean, I'm sure some of the things I, I do might still reflect my training in psychodynamic psychiatry in the past, but I think I have evolved into a different model, which is, which is more skill oriented, uh, more related to, to helping people to function in the present and, and with less emphasis on their past experiences. That's the main difference that, 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 as I've evolved over since I was young. Mm -hmm. You mentioned psychopharmacology and that it has some problems. What are some of those problems? And do you think that there are at least some conditions that are better treated with, um, with, with drugs in this case? Well, certainly there are such conditions. I was present at the, at the psychopharmacological revolution in the 1950s, as an undergraduate student, I visited psychiatric hospitals where people were spent years and they were just starting to use medications to, to help. And 10 years later, uh, we had effective treatments for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And these conditions still absolutely require drug treatment and it's the main treatment. So if I worked on a psychiatry ward where Psycho psychotic illnesses were the, were the main thing. I would be doing that kind of biological psychiatry practice mainly. I work in an outpatient setting though, where depression, anxiety, and personality disorders are what dominate the diagnostic spectrum. Now those conditions do respond, some of them do respond to medication up to a point. My complaint is that a lot of these patients cannot access psychotherapy, which has been, and psychotherapy has been shown to be just as effective, if not maybe a little bit better than drug treatment alone. And maybe the two of them together for, for many patients are more effective than either separately. But psychotherapy is not, not, not always insured either by, by governments, for example. I know in Europe, it's better than it is in North America. We have insurance in Canada here, but it does, but it doesn't insure psychologists. It only insures psychiatrists. So, so this makes psychotherapy much less available because psychologists are doing most of it. So, the, so in the in the personality disorders and in depression and anxiety, psychotherapy is still the major evidence-based approach, but it's because of its expense, because, a lot, because it isn't supported by the system, a lot of patients end up taking 
one, two, three, four, five drugs. The prescriptions keep adding up when they don't get better, and they're often added without subtracting anything. And so uh, this makes me sad because it's not the psychiatry that I believe in. Mm -hmm. Do you but think that to make psychotherapy more accessible? Mm -hmm. Do you think that there are any mental conditions for which people are nowadays overdiagnosed or even certain things that should be considered normal that have a diagnosis attached to them? Well, absolutely. Uh, I don't know if you've had Alan Francis on your, on your, on your program, but he's written a lot about this. Uh, I also wrote a book called Overdiagnosis in Psychiatry. Uh, it's not so much that, that normal, I'm not so concerned that normal people are receiving diagnoses. I'm more concerned they're receiving the wrong ones because they're, because they're popular and they're a fad and everyone's looking for it. So the examples I gave in my book were bipolar disorder, which is often diagnosed in people who are just moody, highly moody, and maybe they have a personality disorder, but they don't really have bipolar disorder. Another example uh, that I gave was attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Of course, there are, it's a real thing and there are such cases, but almost every, but you have a situation where, you know, the prescriptions for both children and adults have increased by a factor of 10 over, and, and obviously a lot of people who might be, whose problems might be thought of in a different way are receiving drug treatment because, because there's a fad for ADHD and it's extremely hot, it hasn't stopped, it's getting worse every year. Uh, and there are other examples, autistic spectrum disorders, you know, everybody who's a little nerdy and overly introverted is told, is gonna to be told they're on an autistic spectrum. At least that doesn't lead to drug treatment automatically. Um, and, uh, so, and even depression, I think, is overdiagnosed because if you look at the criteria for what's called major depression, uh, they're very soft. And if you have two weeks of misery, you already have the diagnosis. And I think this is, it's not that people, let's put it this way, unhappiness and grief are part of the human, the human condition. We all have times in our life when we feel miserable. If you look at major depression in the population, you'll see that at least half of us, and maybe three quarters of us have, have met criteria sometime during our life because it only takes two weeks of two weeks to, to make the, to make it such a diagnosis. So I think there is a problem, yes. Mm -hmm. It's called somebody has called this concept creep, where you have a good idea and then you start expanding the idea to include everything that you see. Mm -hmm. And in the specific case of depression, couldn't it be the case that uh, sometimes at least people receive that diagnosis when they are simply going through a period of uh, sadness where they are reacting to something bad that, hap that happened in their lives recently and with time it simply goes away? Yes, or if they, these are the people who could benefit from a short course of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. 
and I don't like, and since they are likely to get better anyway, but you want to get them better faster, this is one of the main indications for psychotherapy, I think, which is, you know, a situation where people are overwhelmed by some negative event in their life and can't cope with it. So, and, you know, this raises the question of whether psychotherapy is also given to normal people. And I guess it is, you know, but uh, um, certainly, uh, if you see a psychiatrist or, or even a, a general doctor, you tell them they're depressed, they're reaching already to write the prescription for the antidepressant before they even hear the story. This is what's happening today. Mm -hmm. Right. So I have one last question here. We've been talking a lot about psychoanalysis and the several limitations and drawbacks that it has from a scientific perspective. Do you think that it's possible to reconcile uh, traditional psychoanalysis with contemporary scientific research in psychology? I don't think so. I think that psycho, I think psychoanalysis has to be brought back into the university and become part of, of an academic mission and make contact, not just with neuroscience, like with Solms, but also with other forms of psychology. I think there's room for a kind of a melding or a uh, sense of connection between the CBT community and the, and the psychodynamic community. Uh, I think that the idea of psychoanalysis as a separate discipline outside the academic frame is killing it because, because in science, you always have to, someone, has, have to have someone around you who tells you you're wrong. And maybe you're completely wrong. And this is what's exciting about working in the university. It's, uh, if you're surrounded by a small group of people who have maybe minor differences, which they might fight about, but basically adopt their, a, a particular theoretical position and they're constantly validating each other. This is not going to produce progress. And I think most people would agree that the progress in thinking in psychoanalysis has not been great. I mean, there was a time in the 1970s, you had something called self-psychology at that time, and it was very popular for a while on that. But it was not connected to science and it died out, it disappeared. Attachment theory, is the best bet for psychoanalysis because it also belongs to the academic world. And what Bowlby wrote about in the 1970s, I was amazed because he, the first time I'd seen a psychoanalyst quoting research and talking about what supports and what doesn't support his theory and being open to, to the integration of ideas from different disciplines. This was a great man, John Bowlby. Uh, he didn't understand genetics and individual differences, that was missing from the model, but that could be added to it as well. Um, and uh, so this is why I think that the, be the best trends among art and psychoanalysis are among the psychoanalysts who work in a university that are involved with the academic mission and don't, and don't have a separate world where they can go once a week and, and talk to their friends. I mean, this is 
this is what's needed. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Paris, let's end on that note. Just before we go, I've mentioned some of your books in the introduction. Would you like to mention some places on the internet where people can find your work? Well, Amazon has, I, I'm an Amazon author. So if you look me up under Amazon authors, I published 25, over 25 books. But mo most recently, uh, I, I did a whole bunch of new editions of books I had ri written in the past, which involved usually rewriting the whole thing. One is called Nature and Nurture in Psychiatry, where I talk about gene environment theory. Another one is the treatment of borderline personality disorder, which is making a lot of progress. Uh, and that also went into a second edition. And my overdiagnosis in psychiatry book also went into a second edition. So I wrote a lot of second editions and I'm also writing some new books, but I'm still writing them, so they're not on Amazon yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Paris, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me, and I enjoyed talking to you. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing this channel for three years, bringing you top academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields and I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Even one dollar would already be a great help. Otherwise you also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview and please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button if you like the interview. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windager, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spigne, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Librant, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adaner Usmani, my, pro my producer, Zizar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, 
Ian Gilligan, Sérgio Codriano, Luís Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.